Father, uh, we come before you and we ask that your spirit would uh, guide us this day. Lord, we ask that as we um, work through these verses, as we um, begin to enter into this, uh, this pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy, uh, Father, we pray that you uh, would speak to us, you would, um, Lord, help us to sense what Paul felt in his relationship with you. Um, Father, I am unable to convey the things that need to be conveyed here uh, without you. And so, Lord, we ask that as we look at this passage, um, Father, that your spirit would move. Uh, we ask that you would convict us, Lord, um, that you would rekindle in us, Lord, a passion for you, uh, that we would truly experience your amazing grace, uh, that our lives would be transformed, uh, that we would never be bored with you or grow complacent in our relationship with you. Help us uh, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, um, but that we would truly be a people of grace and dependent upon you uh, and just in awe of who you are as creator. Lord, I ask that you give me the energy that I need uh, to get through this. Um, may you be glorified uh, through our time here. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. First <clears throat> Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. <clears throat> now to the King eter eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who... I have handed over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for this time that we have with one another. We ask that it would be fruitful. We ask that we would grow in our understanding of you and that our hearts would be turned towards you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I want to end with the last three verses of this passage as sort of an introduction to where we are. 
Um, I, I also want to start with them because they're a little bit of uh, harsher. It ends with two guys being kicked out of the church. And I, I, uh, I want to end with Paul's heart and um, what he experienced in Christ. Um, but when we read this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. So when we read these three verses, it's sort of uh, in large part an introduction uh, <clears throat> to what was previously said in uh, chapter 1. In verse 3, we see that Paul is writing to young Timothy. Uh, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, Timothy was this young kid that he picked up on his uh, first missionary journey. He invested in him. He groomed him. <clears throat> Timothy, in his own right, was this young pastor um, that God used uh, to serve the early church. Um, on the map behind us, uh, we have Israel sort of to the bottom right. <clears throat> the missionary journey sort of made their way up through modern-day Turkey, which is where Ephesus is. Uh, so Ephesus is in the, uh, the western, uh, it's a western sort of city on the, the coast. It was a huge city. There was a huge goddess there. It was, um, there, was a, there was some Jewish influence there, but it was, re it was really more pagan, um, uh, sort of of its own religion. And so Paul went there. He uh, ministered for the longest period of time out of any of his locations. He was there for three years. He started a school, uh, like rented a classroom, and, and started uh, sort of doing like a church planting uh, discipleship program where he was sending out young men and the church was flourishing. And so things uh, began to creep up. There were problems that started to surface in this town. I think mainly because it was such a, a, a large city um, and the influences from the culture around it. Uh, <clears throat> guys had come in and they were starting to create some problems in the church. <clears throat> and so Paul writes in the beginning of 1 Timothy, like, hey, Timothy, remember when I was there before I departed, departed for Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, I urged you to stay uh, there in Ephesus. And so right away, we get the feeling that, that Timothy uh, was discouraged. This was a task that he didn't necessarily want to participate in. Um, Paul had talked to him in, in person. I think Paul sensed that Timothy might want to sort of uh, get out of this calling. And so Paul writes him uh, from Macedonia. Probably they believe that there was a fourth missionary journey, not, not too positive. <clears throat> but he writes him and he says, hey, stay there. There's, there's a problem. These men, um, in verse 4, or verse 3, verse 4, through these, these men have come in. They're teaching strange doctrines. Um, they're paying attention to myths and genealogies. It's leading to uh, uh, fruitless conversations and people straying from sort of orthodox belief in Christ. Uh, what had happened is religion had crept up and... Um, people were departing from the gospel, were departing from this relationship in Christ. And so Paul says, Timothy, you need to stay there. You need uh, to fight the good fight. Guard the church, protect the church. These men are here. They want to be teachers of the law, but they know nothing of the law. They know nothing of the grace of God. And you need to serve in this way. 
And so uh, Timothy has his charge. All of this letter is a letter of Paul helping Timothy to understand how the church is to run and what, what systems are to be in place and how the church of God is to act at the local church. <clears throat> and so as he talks about uh, the problem that he's about to give Timothy instructions to deal with, in verse 8, he turns his attention to the law. We looked at this last week in brief. Uh, this is about the part where I thought I was uh, going to die uh, while I was speaking. I think the flu actually hit me right around that moment. It was not pleasant. I am appreciative of your guys' grace and kindness towards me. Um, <clears throat> but Paul writes young Timothy, and he says, we know that the law is good. Um, if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. And he lists this uh, two or three verses of... of <clears throat> Really heinous sins. I mean, we're, ta we're talking about um, uh, who, people who kill their parents, um, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And if you look at this list, you almost think that, that Paul is looking down upon these people, but that's not at all what he's saying. He, he's identifying with these people, and in today's passage, he's going to identify himself as, as the greatest sinner of all time. And so he's not looking down on these people. He says, no, the law was not intended to build us up. It was not intended to, to, to create this religion where we can puff ourselves up. Uh, that was Paul's background. In fact, if you'll, if you'll turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3, <clears throat> this is exactly who Paul was. These, almost these guys that he's identifying that was Paul in his previous life. In uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you again is no trouble to me, it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. <clears throat> for we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Pharisees didn't think that they were sinners. They thought that they were the ones that controlled the law, that they had maintained perfection. I believe that when Paul encountered Christ, it was suddenly he had, his big revelation was that he wasn't perfect, but that he was actually a sinner in comparison to God's holiness, and it rocked him to his core. As soon as I find my place again, we'll, we'll continue here. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness <clears throat> which is in the law, found blameless. That, that's a, I don't think I know anybody, I've never met anybody that with a straight face could say, you know what, according to the scriptures, I'm blameless. I've never sinned, I've never fallen short of the standard that is in the scriptures. 
but this was Paul. <clears throat> so as we turn our pages back over to 1 Timothy, <clears throat> in verse 11, as he's, after he's listed all of these sins, or these sinful people, these, uh, what we would, in our, in our natural inclination, we would look down upon these individuals for these heinous crimes. But Paul says the law was intended for these very ones. It was Jesus who said, I didn't, a, a physician's not needed for the healthy, but for the sick. And that he came to bring life to those who were sick. And in verse 11, he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. And I almost think at this point in writing where I feel very... Um, limited in my ability to convey uh, the words that are on this page. Um, this isn't just information. This isn't just um, Paul speaking some great theological truths about who Jesus is. Um, th th this is a man who begins gushing uh, deep within him in worship towards God, a man who recognizes where he came from, who he was apart from Christ, the vile and despicable things that he did before knowing Christ. And he pins these words and he says, this blessed gospel, which I have been entrusted, that he's been given the responsibility to take the gospel, that is that Jesus died according to the scriptures as a payment for our sin, so that through believing in him, we could have life, we could be restored. He says that I've been entrusted with this ministry. And I almost see him with like tears in his eyes, overwhelmed with what God has done in him and through him and is entrusting him to do. Um, he's utterly transformed. <clears throat> and I don't know how in my humanity to kind of like convey the heart that Paul is conveying. Um, the, the only way is if the Spirit of God somehow takes these words of the, on, these on this page and opens up your heart and convicts you of your sin and where you are apart from Christ um, so that you would be transformed. This is about life transformation. It's about relationship. It's not about religion. Paul's guarding from uh, religion and emptiness and going through the motions. He, he wants us to encounter the living God like he has encountered the living God. And so when he looks, right, pins these words, I have been in, which I have been entrusted, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service. <clears throat> this word service is the word from which we get deacon. It's the idea of uh, being a servant. And, and, and there's a lesson of Paul. He says, you know what? I'm just so grateful that God would consider me worthy to, to serve him. Uh, within this passage, we see that um, Paul is a servant of Christ Jesus first and foremost. He's a servant of the gospel, protecting the uh, really what I refer to as the jugular vein of Christianity. And that's it. Jesus died for you. He made the perfect sacrifice. He was a substitute. 
His sacrifice was complete and full and paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. He, he did it all. And Paul's a servant of the church. And so these three things he guards, he protects, he conveys. And he says, who am I that Jesus would, would put me into service and consider me faithful to this great task? I do think it's a great illustration of um, an attitude to have the, uh, the benefit that each of us have in Christ to serve him in this capacity. So he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly. And he's about to describe his former life. Now, we read in Philippians, um, really his resume, it's a powerful resume. He, 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 he had the pedigree that the other apostles didn't have. You know, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the the church, as to the law, he was blameless. But now when he uh, puts down his credentials here, he thinks of three things. I, I've been laughing, I heard from Ben Howard. So Ben Howard, you know, for those who know the missionary we support in, in uh, Japan, the church has, um, They've now called him, or they're in the process of calling him as the senior pastor. But but following Ben along the way and hearing the interviews that he had to go uh, through, <clears throat> I can only imagine if they were interviewing like like Paul. Hey, so w- what are your credentials for the church? Paul says, well, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church, and I was a violent man. It's like, oh, uh, <laughs> But how, how does this qualify you to lead the church? <clears throat> so when Paul sees his service and he sees how God's using him, he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. This isn't even beginning to show the extent of the violence of Paul. Uh, in Acts 26, if you want to turn there with me, uh, Paul is under arrest. <clears throat> he's standing before King Agrippa. He's trying to explain um, to King Agrippa his story, his testimony, how he ended up before him. He's sharing his life before Christ. And he describes himself uh, during this era when he was attacking the local church. He says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up as many of the saints in prison and prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged, at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. So Paul's description of himself is pretty bad. <clears throat> he says, following the resurrection of Christ as the church sprung up, I was furious with these people who testified that Jesus was the Messiah. And it wasn't just that I was angry with them in Jerusalem. I, I, I came down on them with 
violence and havoc. And I had orders from the priest. And often I was there casting my vote to have people executed because they wouldn't recant on who Jesus was. The, uh, in Acts, um, the first martyr of the Christian church, we're told that they laid their jackets at Paul's feet as they killed um, Stephen for his faith in Christ. I believe that those encounters haunted Paul for his life. He's like, I, I forced these guys to blaspheme, to deny the Lord Jesus. The things that he did were so vile and wicked that when he considered back in Timothy that he's been entrusted with this glorious gospel, like how can it be that God had forgiven him? How, how did I receive this forgiveness? How did I receive this mercy? Even though I was a former blasphemer, and a persecutor and violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. And mercy, you know, it's something that we talk about a lot. We know it's, it's God withholding wrath or punishment, or if you're talking to a little kid, it's God not spanking you when you deserve a spanking. <clears throat> he said, I was, I, was, I, I was shown mercy because I was acting in unbelief. I, I mean, there's a whole lot there that he was acting unbelief, but Paul, like, he, this is a very um, smart man. This is a very educated man. Um, you don't become a Pharisee not knowing the scriptures. It, he says, I acted in unbelief, that he denied that Jesus was the Messiah, and he went about these things in a way that he believed that he should have severe punishment by God. And he said, yet yeah, God was merciful to me. <clears throat> I think there's a lesson here for us. I, uh, I think one of the hardest types of forgiveness for us to experience um, is forgiving ourselves for the past. I know that I struggled really in my Christian life of, of I understood, you know, that God forgave me and Jesus paid for my sins on the cross and he had done all that, but... When I looked at my own life and the, the remnant of those things, I was not so quick to, um, to forgive myself or to let myself off the hook. Um, I wanted to continue to punish myself. And it's, it's been a lifelong sort of uh, learning curve to, to learn that God's grace is like overwhelming. That, that he's forgiven me as far as the east is from the west. And don't be a smart aleck like I, I was and say, well, eventually they'll meet up if you keep going to the east and you'll link up, you go all the way around the earth. But the idea is sort of a, a linear out that they never would intersect again, that you are forgiven completely and totally. And to be in that place where you're so burdened by your sin that you just feel vile and wretched, I really don't think there's a better place to be because it's in that moment that God's grace and his love just utterly destroy you because we don't deserve it. So yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with a faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. 
But Paul is totally moved. He understands that he's not worthy of, of God's grace. He understands not only is he not worthy of his grace, but he actually deserves the wrath of God. He then spits out in verse 15, well, he doesn't spit out, but he, he writes this creed that's believed that it was circulating in the early tr- church, um, a creed of a, of a doctrine, a truth that uh, the early church would cling on to. <clears throat> and he says it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. I don't know how we wrap our minds around that this is the Apostle Paul who was a Pharisee, who was a leader of the Pharisees, for him to speak in this way. Um, If you'll turn with me over to Matthew chapter 9. There's a great story here. Um, It's the calling of Matthew. (coughs) Excuse me. In the calling of Matthew, we read, as Jesus went out from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He said to him, follow me, and he got up and he followed him. Then it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table. Uh, And Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners and were dining with Jesus and his disciples When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, they would not associate with those that were quote-unquote sinners. Matthew, when he's called to follow Jesus, he throws this big party, invites all of his tax-collecting buddies, and they have this celebration. He wants his buddies to come to know Christ the Pharisees sort of stood back at a distance and said, who is this rabbi that eats with the sinners? And when Jesus heard this, verse 12, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what it means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus knew, as Paul writes back in 1 Timothy, that the law was given for, these, for sinners, for all of us. That it came to break us, to show us our sin, to show us of our need of a Savior. And then as we uh, are convicted of our sin, it's mercy that draws us to Christ. And that we come to this place through faith that God transforms us. It's a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And look how Paul identifies. Among whom I am foremost of all. So when Paul looks at this list back in verse 9, the lawless and rebellious, the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who killed their fathers or mothers for murders, and for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, Paul says, I am worse than all of those guys. 
I am the foremost of all sinners. And when Christ came to save me because I was in great need, um, he says, yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me, as a foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. When I see this, Paul's like, when I look around at this whole world and I look at other individuals, I see all of them being far better and far more uh, spiritually minded than myself. He's like, when I see myself, I see myself as a man who went out and wreaked havoc on the local church. I see myself as the man that was responsible for killing Stephen. I feel myself responsible for blaspheming Jesus, my Lord. And he said that when the Lord looked out, he sees this young Saul, this, Paul, this apostle, future apostle apostle Paul, and he says, you know what? There's no greater individual than for me to display my great patience. And that if people would see what God did in Paul's life, they would say, you know what? God must be a pretty patient guy. He must be pretty long-suffering. He must be pretty gracious. Because if Paul could come to faith in Christ, there must be hope for me. And I think that this is what Paul is trying to convey, that there is hope for each of us. There's no sin that you've committed that's warranted you unsavable by God. When I look at this passage of Paul, I, I, I see a couple things. That, um, that if you haven't received forgiveness in Christ, it's available to you. The second one that's like way more convicting to me this week and, and <clears throat> been a burden of my heart, you know, is, uh, is that if you've received this forgiveness, don't grow cold. Um, don't, don't drift um, from that moment when you came to know Christ, when you were desperate, like, oh, well, now I'm a good Christian. I've been walking with the Lord for 20 years. I'm pretty okay now. When I look at Paul's life, he never lost sight of how amazing God's grace was. He never lost sight of the miracle that happened in his life through the transformation. Another guy like Paul was, um, you know, the mentioning of amazing grace um, is uh, John Newton. John Newton is the author of Amazing Grace. Some of us might know his story. He started out in the British Navy he, um, he had all kinds of problems in the Navy, actually. Um, I believe that a lot of his hymns are so famous because he was a wordsmith. He was very good with language, uh, so much so that one of his famous uh, claims to fame is he could go 30 minutes of spewing profanity and never repeat a word twice. He, he had such a foul and vulgar mouth that in the British Navy, his commanding officer had to reprimand him multiple times. He was often sort of chained and imprisoned, and the whole, his, his stent in the Navy didn't work out, but he was a, a, a sailor, and he found his way into slave trading, and he was a vile and wicked man. Horrific things, pulling slaves out of Africa and transporting them. Uh, he often had close calls with death, Eventually, uh, during one sense, uh, such moment, he, <clears throat> he had a sort of, you know, come to Jesus moment where he says, you know, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll give you my life. 
and through that encounter, he, <clears throat> he gave his life to Christ. He eventually left slave trading. He eventually became a pastor. Uh, he had huge influences on people like William Wilberforce who fought to abolish slavery in, in England. Uh, and it was said that over his desk, he, he wrote Deuteronomy 15.15 so that whenever he studied, he would never forget the man who he was. And Deuteronomy 15.15 says, Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondsman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He said, I'll never forget where I came from. I'll never forget the man who I was. I am nobody except a man that's been saved by grace. He wrote his epitaph. However you say that word, I always struggle with it. Epitaph? Epitaph? Epitaph. Somebody help me out. Epitaph? Epitaph? Sound good? Nobody's going to call me on it? This is what he wrote. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. This is a man that was so moved by what Christ did in his life that that reality never grew cold. He was passionate about it until the day he died like Paul, this man, this great apostle. And yet when he sees himself, he just recognized that he was a man that Jesus in his mercy, his kindness, his graciousness redeemed him from the miry clay that he was in. I think there's a warning here for us to like never let our, our, our love for the Lord grow cold. Uh, we, we, we sang one of those songs, uh, I don't know if it was the Keith Green song that we started, but like, Lord, light the fire again uh, that once burned bright. Like, don't, don't let what God has done in your life grow dull. Don't think that suddenly because you've been a Christian now for a decade or 20 years or 30 years, that suddenly there's any less significance to the transformational work that Christ has done in your life. If we lose sight of this individually or collectively as, as a church, we're in trouble. If somebody walks through our doors and we look down at them like, whoa, who's that scumbag? Like, let them get out of here. Like, no, that person, that's me and that's you. And that's what the law's purpose was for, is to save the lost, to show us our need at the, so, Father, we do thank you that you are a God that is filled with mercy, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness. <clears throat> we thank you that Jesus, being God, stepped out of heaven uh, to, to walk amongst us, to show us <clears throat> who you are. We thank you for his example of humility, of love, of gentleness. And Father, we need you. Father, I pray for those that maybe have never experienced salvation. Lord, I ask that you would help each of us to see our great need. If there are people here who have not responded by faith to Christ, I ask that you would help them to to connect the dots that they 
need in order to know that your forgiveness, your love is available to them, not based on works, not based on doing, simply by receiving. Father, for those of us who have um, come to faith in you, I ask that you would give us a good glimpse into the people we were apart from Christ. Lord, I pray for the young people that grew up in the church here that maybe um, haven't seen um, their sin in a, in a way that has gripped their hearts. I pray that you would help them to see uh, what you spared them from. Father, may our love for you never grow cold. May our passion for you Never cease. Grow our desire for you. Grow our passion for you. Help us to have a zeal for you that can't be contained. We love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.